This is The Guardian. Today, the hidden costs of the cheap chicken on your dinner plate. So I walk into this shed, which is not a shed by normal standards. So we're, we're Somerset. We're sort of the middle of Somerset. Longer than a jumbo jet. Hinkley Point's about three miles that way. Almost um, as wide. Big high roof. Really, really hot. 32.9 degrees. Full of little yellow, sort of tennis ball size, three-day-old chicks. 17,000 of them that are running around in crowds, sort of following each other, some in the corners. But the floor is just full of a sea of yellow fluff. So I'm with a farmer who owns the shed, a guy called Simon Barton, and one of the first things he tells me as we walk in is to, to shuffle around rather than to, to step, because you can imagine the chicks are that small, it would be quite easy to squash one. 17,000? It's a lot of birds, isn't it? Yes, it's enough birds in that one shed that you can't, you know, you can't see them all, you can't get your head around how many there are. And so I did a, some mathematics with this to get a sense of how long it would take us as a nation to eat that many chickens. And in the one shed where I'm looking at these 17,000 yellow chicks running around, we'd eat that many in about nine minutes. Think about that. If we eat 17,000 chickens every nine minutes in the UK, that adds up to more than a billion a year. A billion chickens plucked and processed through the farming and slaughterhouse systems of this country. As a nation, we seem to have an almost insatiable appetite for chicken in nuggets, sandwiches, curries and roasts. And as our demand for it goes up, the price keeps on falling. We've got used to ordering whatever we want, whenever we want, and at prices our grandparents could only have dreamt of. But that may be starting to change as the food supply chain comes under pressure at every stage, from the farm to the plate. 50 years ago, you'd have paid the equivalent of £11 for a medium-sized chicken. Now, it costs less than a latte, which raises serious ethical and environmental questions. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, the real cost of the chicken in your supermarket trolley. Simon Osborne, over the years, you've written features on all sorts of topics like the origin story of Henry the Hoover and why Peppa Pig has become an international icon. For this story, you took a trip to a chicken farm. What were you hoping to find out? I wanted to get a, an understanding of how an industry like that grows into this beast of food production, of protein production. What does it take to create that further up the supply chain with someone like uh, a farmer whose livelihood depends on creating a huge number of these birds to meet that massive demand? Tell me about the farmer who runs things. Yeah, chicken farmers, it turns out, are a, a special breed, as it were. They <laughs> are often 
very entrepreneurial, often come sometimes from different backgrounds. This guy, Simon Barton, used to be a an engineer for the BBC. He used to do outside broadcast. He worked several Olympic Games, did Wimbledon, all kinds of stuff. His wife was a nurse. They lived in London, had young kids. But Karen, who is Simon's wife, grew up on a farm in Somerset. Her father was a chicken farmer. And they made this huge decision in the late 90s to move out of London, different pace of life, go and work on the farm, which they eventually took over. And they now, you know, 20 odd years later, produce a million chickens a year. Wow. It's quite a turn of events, isn't it? To go from working at the BBC to running a chicken farm. And I'm sure that a lot of people have these kind of fantasies of, like you're saying, moving out of London, running a farm. It's not an easy business, though, is it? It's not an easy business, but it's also weirdly, again, a different kind of farming. Because, for example, you know, there's no reason why this guy ever gets mud on his boots because he only rears chickens in giant sheds. He only employs two other people. He and his wife run the business. Mm -hmm. And so it's four people creating a million chickens a year. That alone gives you a sense of how automated, high-tech, industrialised this process has become. Your handy has probably helped you in it's farming. It's definitely helped with fixing, fixing stuff and doing bits and pieces. That, yeah. that, was, the, that was the easy part because yeah. I had the technical knowledge, especially with driving computers and stuff like that. Yeah. How does the size of his outfit compare to other chicken farms? He's kind of middle-rung chicken farmer. He's got several sheds. And when I was there with him across all his sheds, he had a crop of... Uh, 197,000 chicks. But, you know, there are farms with sheds with 50,000 plus chickens in, wow. in a single shed. Tell me a bit more about the process. He's getting chicks in at just a few days old. Where do they come from and then what happens? Well, there is, there's another uh, part of the supply chain before the farmer, which is the hatchery. And these are industrial incubation sites, basically, where they produce chicks and at usually about one day old they ship them to the farms then to be grown after about six weeks in this shed eating 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 they will have multiplied 45 times in weight to 2.4 kilos which is the target weight simon the farmer is going for at that stage they will then be it's called depletion when a team will come in, scoop them up into baskets and truck them off to a vast processor, an abattoir, basically. Okay, who is Simon mainly selling these to? He has a, an exclusive contract to supply all of his chickens to one man, this guy called Ranjit Singh Boparan, whose nickname is the Chicken King, because he is the biggest player in this industry by some distance. He's a kind of fascinating guy in his own right. I started on the factory floor on living wage and I worked my way, way up there. He grew up in the West Midlands, dropped out of school, eventually got a job at a butcher's, learned about the meat industry and then in 93 got a bank loan to create Two Sisters Food Group. It specialises in poultry from 600 farms. It has 16 massive processing sites the factories really around the country. From our point of view, you know, when you're killing six and a half million chickens a week, you've got to keep the supply chain going. And now that food group processed 10 million chickens a week. This guy is now worth about 600 million quid. 
Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, There's a lot of money in the chicken a, business. He's a major player. There are three big companies across the UK and he's the biggest of the three. So Simon's sending his chickens off to the chicken king. How much profit would he hope to make? He didn't want to talk specifics of profits, but to give you a sense across the industry, the average price for a chick is uh, 39p. Oh my goodness. I was told. And then you sell per kilo onto the processor. And for a kind of medium-sized chicken, um, you're talking between a sort of pound and pound 50 is what I got a sense from this guy. Which sounds like a big increase in price, but then... I mean, there's all the costs that go into actually rearing that. Yeah. And, it, and it, you know, it's such a sort of, you know, rapacious industry. His biggest overhead by some distance is 70% of his costs is the feed for the chicken, mm. which is not inexpensive in itself because it's this sort of high tech formulated feed. And there are different feeds that he gives the chickens at different phases in their life to optimize their growth. It costs a lot of money to fatten up a chicken to that extent in a six-week period yeah he makes money but the margins are very tight because you can imagine when you're dealing with someone like the chicken king it's very competitive yes i mean one thing i would say about poultry is it's there's no subsidies we're standing on our own two feet um so we're proud of that yeah To understand how we got to this point, where a chicken dinner for four people can cost less than a pint of beer, we need to look back in time by about 70 years, when a scientific development transformed the way this meat was farmed, taking it from localised, small-scale operations to being a worldwide, intensive industry. In 1948, in Maryland, in America, a farm hosted this competition, and it was called the Chicken of Tomorrow. Wow. And farmers from across America were invited to send eggs to be hatched and entered into this competition. The nation's largest poultry retailers offered to sponsor a contest for the development of superior meat-type chickens. It's hosted and, and sponsored by a supermarket chain, which gives you a sense of the purpose of this thing. Mm -hmm. There was a big marketing push as well. The Chicken of Tomorrow contest has turned the spotlight on meat production and poultrymen cite the many benefits derived from the three-year program. So it took 12 weeks for the chicks that were entered from across America to be reared. They were assessed at every stage. You know, they were slaughtered. Their meat was tasted and judged. And the winners were then kind of interbred until what you got pretty quickly were dominant species which were faster growing, you know, they had bigger breasts for more breast meat or breast yield, as they say. And eventually they were also bred to eat less so that the cost of the feed came down. They were basically bred over decades to become the chickens we know today. But what happened after the competition is that a couple of companies seized on the winning birds and effectively bought those bloodlines. Uh, one company was in Scotland, actually. Uh, and in the 50s, a company was created near Edinburgh called Chunky Chicks, which tells you something by itself. And they then uh, created a chicken, which became the property of a big company called Ross. Separately in East Anglia, another chicken that could be traced to this competition in Maryland was created by an American headquartered company called Cobb. 
and eventually two dominant fast-growing chicken breeds emerged, the Cobb 500 and the Ross 308. Wow, why did they name them like computers? Well, that's how they do it because there are now lots of different varieties. But Cobb and Ross are now owned respectively by two of the biggest players in the global food supply chain. And these two companies own about 90% of all the genetic material that goes into all of the breeding, the hatcheries, and eventually the chicks that get to farms like Simon Barton's. So the Chicken of Tomorrow contest started a revolution in how these birds were farmed. Can you give us a sense of how consumer demand for chicken increased through the second half of the 20th century. Yeah, so as these companies learned to create these bigger, cheaper, faster growing, higher yield animals, and as the marketing around that evolution in the industry increased, people started eating chicken a lot more because, sure enough, the price went down. I feel like chicken tonight, like chicken tonight. You can look at the prices in Britain because the government started recording them in 1967. And back then, if you equate it to a sort of medium-sized whole chicken, that chicken cost, by today's standards, if you adjust for inflation, about £11. Which is a lot more than the average price now, isn't it? Which is a lot more than the average price now because over the decades, if you plot this on Excel, which is the kind of thing I like to do, you then see the price drop very steadily over the following decades until the average price of a medium-sized chicken of the sort that Simon Barton grows in his massive sheds is about £4.42. And that's the average. You can wow. go a lot lower than that. Yeah. £3.50 is quite a standard sort of starting price for a whole chicken in the big supermarkets now. Simon Barton, the farmer, immediately said, look, that's that's the price of a latte and asked, you know, can you feed a family on a latte? And yet this is the price we have come to expect to pay mm. for a 2.4 kilo, probably more like 1.6 when you buy it, chicken. Coming up, how long can this race to the bottom last? Simon, with the cost of everything else going up so much recently, surely chicken is going to get more expensive too. I mean, this business model is just not sustainable, is it? Yes. What has happened now, very recently, is that the industry itself is beginning to ask questions about its own business model. And what's striking uh, more still is that the guy who has put his head above the parapet is the chicken king himself. In the middle of October, Ranjit Singh Baparan put out this quite striking press release on his Two Sisters Food Group website, which was widely reported at the time, where he called for a great food reset. And the days when you could feed a family of four with a three pound chicken are coming to an end. We need transparent, honest pricing. The reason he did this was not so much because he suddenly had this realization that producing chickens at this scale in this way is potentially ethically problematic or environmentally questionable, but because the supply chain has become massively squeezed 
for a, a kind of collision of reasons, including Brexit, you know, although the farming isn't labor intensive, meat processing is, and the industry lost about 15% of its workforce after Brexit. The price of chicken feed has gone up 15%. And when that's your, you know, that's 70% of your costs as a farmer, that's huge. It costs a lot uh, to heat these sheds to 32 degrees, especially in the winter. You can imagine the heating bill for sheds like that. Price of energy has gone up. There's just a squeeze on basically every element of this supply chain. So what is he saying that supermarkets need to be paying more? He's saying that we need to pay more. He's saying that the consumer needs to pay more so that those increases can ease the pressure all the way up the supply chain. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but that's going to require, you know, a financial adjustment, particularly for lower income families. It's going to require a cultural adjustment and a business adjustment. But what's kind of fascinating about that sort of business minded call for a reset is that it aligns with what Uh, animal welfare groups have been calling for all along, which is an increase in welfare standards for chickens. Because, you know, sure enough, animal rights groups have for a very long time said this is an insane, rapacious business model, unsustainable, unethical. And one way to put the price up on chicken is to say this is a higher welfare, higher quality Mm -hmm. bird and it's going to cost you a bit more and then but it's also going to be better for the chicken but even that's a really challenging and complicated push because higher welfare chickens have a much bigger carbon impact for example right okay why is that cuz they live longer which means they eat a lot more feed over time and most of the feed comes from soya Soya plantations can be disastrous for deforestation and land use generally, water water consumption. If they live longer, you have to keep the sheds heated up longer, you know, per chicken. If they are free range and they're using land outside, because we've only been talking about indoor reared birds, but free range organic, which is the next level up, then you've got huge demand on land. The efficiencies of chicken production are stunning but they're also if you consider the volume of meat amazingly carbon unintensive the impact of chicken production is about that of olive oil and it's about a tenth of that of beef and there have been campaigns in the past few years you've had celebrity chefs like hugh fernley whittingstall and jamie oliver this chicken here is now pound for pound cheaper than this dog food there is another way the free range way you know really really trying to encourage people to eat more free range chicken has that made a significant change to welfare standards across the industry in the past few years not yet significantly there are two standards and interestingly simon my farmer produces chickens to both standards. One is pretty much the kind of basement standard for chicken welfare, and it's the red tractor assured scheme. And there is a maximum amount of chickens you can pack into a square meter of your shed. And it's in this country for red tractor, it's 38 kilograms per square meter. Okay. And again, what would that look like? I did some nerdy maths. Uh, if you picture a beach towel, laid out on the ground by the time the chickens are fully grown there'd be about 16 of them on the beach towel 
So that's crowded. Yeah. That's really crowded. There are also some other things with red tracks. You have to have a certain amount of windows for natural daylight, hay bales for pecking, stuff that kind of encourages chickens to do the things that chickens naturally want to do. And that accounts for pretty much 95% of the market, that standard. The other 5% increasingly is something called the Better Chicken Commitment which the RSPCA supports. And it kind of aligns with something called RSPCA Assured. And the shed I was looking at was RSPCA Assured. And it doesn't sound to me like a huge evolution in welfare. They're still only going to see the inside of the shed, but their maximum uh, density is 30 kilos per square meter. Slightly roomier, but combination of the more space slightly better conditions, more pecking, more hay bales, creates a standard that the RSPCA sees as a kind of compromise. You know, they said to me, it's not perfect, but if we can nudge the industry to switch all their supplies to this assured standard by 2026, which is what they're pushing for, then that will represent the kind of biggest advance in chicken welfare since this whole crazy business model was was created. And, you know, M&S, Waitrose, even KFC and Nando's have signed up to it to switch all of their production to this slightly higher standard by 2026. Simon Barton is already doing some of his farming to that higher welfare standard, the one approved by the RSPCA. What did he say about this price issue, about cheap prices not being sustainable? He was very supportive of the chicken king, you know, who, let's face it, is the guy he sells all his chickens to and thinks it was time for someone with his stature to, as he put it, put his head above the parapet on this stuff. Because sure enough, he's feeling the squeeze that the chicken king uh, talked about. Like I said, his his feed costs have gone up 15%, energy, all the rest of it. He's still just about profitable, but knows of other farmers who are sliding out of profit and are considering selling up, getting out of the business or are really struggling. As he put it, you know, that he's run out of headroom. He's invested heavily with the help of big bank loans, 1.5 million he's invested over the past five years in like a, a massive new biomass wood chip boiler, which is greener and cheaper to run. But this is all, say we've just invested um, in a new shed. We knocked one of our, one of these wooden sheds down. Because these sheds date back to when? Oh, mid-60s. Okay. So they're a bit tired and a bit old and we're, the plan is- He's converting sheds down. to this higher standard and thinks that that will continue to happen as this sort of campaign and consumer demands maybe shifts a little bit more. You know, a lot of people are feeling squeezed with their budgets at the moment. Energy bills have gone up massively this month for a lot of people. Inflation's rising. And if someone's thinking, do you know what? I just want to have dinner with my family to eat something that's tasty and filling and affordable... It's a difficult argument to be making right now that people should be spending more on their food shopping. It is. And, you know, maybe that even if uh, there isn't a kind of an active reset, there'll be a sort of passive reset and you will have to pay more for your chicken because because you're paying more for everything else. I don't think we're ever going to see, you know, this kind of massive shift to this bucolic ideal of a Hugh Fernie Whittingstall stroked uh, outdoor chicken and and, it, and that would have big environmental consequences but maybe this compromise is best or 
we eat less chicken as a nation and a lot of people are doing that flexitarianism lab grown meat meat alternatives plant-based alternatives that's all happening but actually if you look at the stats chicken consumption unlike other meat pork lamb and beef in this country have steadily gone down when you look at the consumption but chicken is still creeping up yeah all across the world across the world yeah so not only did chicken lend itself very well to this kind of unnatural rapid selection and evolution into a kind of fast growing high yield protein source that you could grow in crops over you know a few weeks but also the meat itself has virtually no kind of cultural or religious barriers like other meats do and with the marketing on top of all that it just became the kind of the most popular meat it kind of stands to reason that it that it would be so what would it take to make people pay more for their chicken then? Did Simon Barton say anything to you about that? I mean, what what does he think would be a reasonable price? And he wouldn't answer. He didn't want to put a price on a fair chicken and just said at the end of the day, he will produce what the consumer wants. Because it's not up to him, it's up to you and me. What are we prepared to pay for the stuff that we eat? And how much are we prepared to think about what goes into it? Simon, thank you so much. You're welcome. That was Simon Osborne. You can read his article about the £3 chicken business at theguardian.com. And while you're there, have a look at the other features he's written. If you like this one, then I'd really recommend his piece about the IKEA Billy bookcase and how much it really costs in environmental terms. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Rose de la and Adrian Lacey. Sound design was by Axel Cucutier. The executive producers are Mythali Rao and Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. <laughs> 